You're listening to the Truth About Bible Study taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. So let's pray and then we'll start our lesson today. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you're a good God, that you are a God who has revealed himself to us in your word. And we thank you that we can study this morning and we can um, look at these issues that we deal with in our life and that um, our society deals with and get real um, answers to them, to know how the God of heaven thinks about um, these subjects. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be bold and courageous and to be loving and kind in how we um, deal with our culture and, and the people we know and meet. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you just teach us something this morning that's, that's beneficial to us in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So thus far we've been speaking about the truth about truth, the truth about morality. And these two subjects, as you can kind of surmise, are more foundational stones. So we're talking about the foundation for what's to come. The truth about truth. I mean, if without moral, transcendent God giving us a law, revealing to us truth, we have no absolute foundation for truth. Okay, now we can say, well, in this situation, this is better, and this works better, and this is better for this, and this is better for this, and so we can make some pragmatic ideas about what we think is right and wrong, but without a transcendent lawgiver, there is no absolute foundation for truth. Okay, there's, there's nothing objective that's purely objective, but when we have a God who gives it to us, we have the possibility of having real truth, truth that transcends us. Truth that is not relative to us or our situation. Truth that does not change and does not bend for us. And so the natural progression of our thought leads us to ask, what is the truth about morality? If there is truth out there, then what is truth about right and wrong? In the last few lessons, we've seen how God has revealed to us in Scripture and through Jesus Christ, what is the truth about morality? What is the truth about right and wrong? And what we've done over the last few weeks, or the last few times at least that we spoke together, we've done our best to try and determine what areas of our life and what circumstances might come across our own lives that might deter us or or cloud our judgment or cloud how we view Scripture when it comes to this idea of truth about morality. Because I think sometimes we just have these assumptions that what we've always believed, what we've always been taught, that, that those things are right but we never actually go to the Bible and check them. And then sometimes we get into circumstances where we feel like our emotions are telling us that this is what's just at the moment. This is what's right. But we're not actually stepping back from our emotions and saying, okay, what does the Bible actually say about this subject? And so we've tried to encourage you over the last little while to um, recognize those possible um, influences in your life and to try and change them, and try and try and look at your life through the lens of Scripture as best as we can. So now it's time, after speaking about the truth about truth and the truth about morality, we need to get into specific subjects. This is where the rubber meets the road, and for the rest of our series, we'll be dealing with things that I think are more practical for you. And so if you are, if you're, have anybody read a book that's on some type of specific subject, like a book about parenting or the book about your marriage, and it's written by a good theologian. Anybody read a book like that before? Okay. What you'll notice what most theologians do is they spend like the first half of the book giving like the theological foundation for what they're talking about. 
And the whole time you're thinking, just tell me what to do. <laughs> and they're like, they're not going to do that, right? They're going to give you all of the meaning of and the, the theology behind and the reason for marriage and all those things, if it's about marriage, um, before they get into, okay, so this is how you apply these things, all right? And so as much as I like getting to the second half of the book where it's very practical, I think it is important for us to understand why we're there, why we're doing those things, Okay. And that might help us because the truth is there's no book that can practically explain to you every aspect of what a marriage is supposed to be. But when you understand the purpose of marriage and God's design for marriage, then it's, it's a much easier for us, no matter what circumstance, to say, okay, what would God have me to do based on what he has said about what marriage is? And I think it's true about all of these subjects we'll speak about. And it's certainly true about the subject of life, the sanctity of life. And that's what we're speaking about this morning. The first general topic we'll endeavor is to discuss is the truth about life, the sanctity of human life as taught by Scripture. Norman Geisler said, of all the moral issues, the most pressing are those that involve life and death. Chip Ingram said that of all the issues out there, sanctity of life is the most important issue, not just of our day, but of all time. I think that's... an important thing for us to understand. This idea of the sanctity of life, it's a big deal. It's an important issue. It's not something we should breeze over, and it's something that we deal with all the time. Okay? And, and this has been an issue within the world since the beginning of the world, since the inception of Christianity, for sure. There hasn't been a time where culture didn't push against Christian teachings and values in this area. So it is important for us to know why we believe what we believe, not just to found our beliefs in our feelings. Okay, there are many ways of addressing an issue like this. And the way that you would address an issue like this would change depending on your purpose, what your goal is, and the audience. And so I wanted, before we begin, just to um, explain that my goal this morning is not to persuade you to believe in the sanctity of life, my assumption going into this is that you're believers and that you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, okay? that the Bible is given to us by God. And so my assumption is you already believe in the sanctity of life. My goal this morning, and will be for the next few lessons, is to help us learn how to found our beliefs strictly in the Bible and how doing that will change the way that we, we interact with people, how it will change the way we handle this subject and, and what it calls us to. And so before we get into um, the general topic of the sanctity of human life, I'm wondering if you can tell me what subjects you think are tied to this topic of the sanctity of life. Anybody have like a, a specific issue that is kind of falls under this general heading of the sanctity of life? Assisted suicide. Good. That's one. Abortion is on the paper. Good. You got it. Thank you, Joanne. All right. Yep. Okay, the right to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Euthanasia. I mean, all of those end-of-life issues, how, how you deal with those. Yep. Good. What else? Capital punishment. Oh. Capital punishment. Yes, you're right. Also, generally, the way people are treated based on okay. uh, what kind of abilities that they have. Or okay. So the treatment of people who maybe have some type of developmental disability or physical disability, for sure. Good. Eugenics. Let me know what that is. 
doesn't it? It'd be fun to talk about. Not fun to talk about. It's we will talk about it. Uh, how about just suicide? I think that has to do with life, the sanctity of human life. Uh, and so we'll get to to all of these subjects um, in the next few weeks, and we'll probably cover more than one a week. This week, I'm not even sure if we'll get to start the issue of abortion. Depends on how long we get to this through this initial part. Um, but as we say those things, I know that. Um, those are things that, that are real issues that are dealt with in culture. And they might even be things that, um, at least according to statistics, people in this room have dealt with. Whether it's you personally or someone you love very closely. And so this isn't a topic that's divorced from reality and divorced from our feelings and our emotions. I, I know that when you say these issues, when you just say the word abortion, people have this visceral response to that. That there's just this immediate emotion that, that grips them about either the, the good that can come of abortion or the evil of abortion uh, on both sides. And so what I want to try and have us do as best as we can is say, what does the Bible say about the sanctity of human life? And then how does that apply to all of these areas that we've just mentioned? So that's our goal in the next little while. Um, in college, I wrote a paper about the sanctity of life. It was a short paper, but my thesis was that the vast majority of Christians have come to an ethical conclusion on the moral issue of abortion. In other words, we've made the right decision on the ethical issue of abortion and um, issues of the sanctity of life. However, because um, abortion is fundamentally a theological issue, believers should build the positions they espouse on biblical and theological foundations. So the idea is, as Christians, feeling is not enough. Even the right answer ultimately is not enough. We should be able to say, this is what the Bible says, and so this is what I believe. I think a lot of us believe the right things, but not for the best reasons. Uh, Many people rely on their gut feelings, on medical evidence, and on rational arguments. And there is a place for these things, but it's not the highest place. And so we will talk about some of those things, but that's not the main reason as Christians we believe them. We believe in the sanctity of life because of what God has revealed to us in Scripture. And that's how we must stand. And and all those things should back up that, but they don't come first. The foundation of the believer's understanding of abortion and of the sanctity of human life ought to come directly from God's revelation of what constitutes objective morality for mankind. So the truth is, God is the ultimate judge, and no amount of logic or intuition or evidence can ever surpass what God says. I hope we understand that as Christians, our motivations matter. Your motivations matter in this area. If you are fighting for human rights because you think you're right and you want to win an argument then you're fighting for the wrong reason. And can I tell you something? Even if you're fighting for the rights of the unborn and the rights of those who are suffering, you're still fighting for the wrong reason. That seems like a better reason. But as Christians, I think we fight or we, we stand, we are ambassadors of the God of heaven. And so ultimately, we take our stand on these issues because of God. 
that's that's the reason behind it all. Now, the fact that we're that we are helping hopefully unborn babies and and all of these other in, in all of these areas of sanctity of life, that's just a reflection of God's character. And so the fact that we're doing those things is because God is good and because God loves those. And so we we fight on behalf of our God. We represent our God. And that's why it's so important for us to found everything in what God has said. And so here is the sanctity of life according to Scripture. Uh, number one, we are created by God. Life was created by God. This is very obvious. Um, but this is the most important passage of Scripture in the entire Bible re- regarding the sanctity of life. So turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Most important passage of the Bible. And, and I think probably the most important passage of the Bible with regard to racism, sexism, classism, ageism, and whatever other kind of ism you can think of. I think this, this text just lays out for us the dignity, the value, the worth of all human beings. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat." And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creeps upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And so in these verses, we, fe- we see a few things. First of all, we see that God created man purposefully. He created man purposely. And what I mean by that is he created man apart from the animals. It it seems like, as you read the creation story, that each day of creation builds upon the last. And it's building towards something. And the very final act here of creation is God creating mankind. And he creates mankind with the idea that they're going to subdue and replenish and, and care for and have authority over everything else that's already been created. And so the storyline even of creation here is that God created man very purposefully. There's something special about his creation of man that isn't present prior to this. He created man purposefully apart from the animals. Um, He did not just say, well, now I'm going to create an ape. And now I'm going to create a cow. But he said, now I'm going to create mankind very specifically. Number two, we see that God created man with a purpose. And this isn't true of any of the other animals that are given. He doesn't say, I'm going to create these animals so that they'll do this in the earth, and these animals so they'll do this. But when he creates man, he he has a very specific purpose, that they're going to replenish the earth, that they're going to subdue it, that they're going to have dominion over it. And so there's a very specific purpose behind God's creation of man. So he did it purposefully, and he created them with purpose. Finally, we see that God's creation of mankind was followed by 
God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Up to this point, everything he's made has been good. But after God's creation of mankind, we see that it's very good. And so there's something special here about God's creation of man. In Job 33, 4, it says, The Spirit of the Lord has made me, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. So God is the creator of life, and human life has a very special part in God's creation. But the second reason that I think that um, we, we see here that God's creation is just so special when he created human life, the second reason that as Christians we should hold the sanctity of human life so high, and probably the only reason you need, is what he said right at the very beginning when he created them. He said, Behold, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so he created them, male and female, in his image. And that's mentioned a few times there. God created man in his image, in the imagio Dei. And God made us to be his ambassadors, the extension of his authority here on the earth. He made us to live in unique relationships with each other, relationships that aren't shared by other animals, And he made us to to share specifically in a unique relationship with him as our creator. We have this living soul that has the ability to have relationship with the one who created us. This is incredibly essential for us to understand that it is the image of God in each human being that makes us of infinite value and worth and dignity. If that's true that changes how we view every area when it comes to the sanctity of human life. It changes how we we view people who are developmentally or physically disabled. It changes how we view people who are old and and sick and probably going to die soon anyway, right? The, The useless eaters. It changes how we see the unborn. It changes how we see everything because we realize that when God gave us a soul, we, us having a soul means we're created in his image. And so because of the imagio Dei in mankind, We are of great value. Number three, we see that throughout the Bible, we are loved by the Creator. And certainly there's a sense that you could say God loves all His creation. He said it was all good. But there's a specific way that that God loves mankind. We see this right in the beginning with His special relationship with Adam and Eve. We see this after the fall when God's immediate response to the fall was to have a plan of redemption. Now, we understand God had this plan of redemption from before time began, but God had this plan that he would send his son. Now, I've had a lot of people ask me in the past, well, do you think it's possible that God has created other worlds with other beings on it, other living things on it? And, I, I mean, I, I don't know if that's a useful question at all, um, but I, I think some people have it. And I would say that, I mean, God is God, right? And so if he wanted to do that, he absolutely could do that. However, his relationship with mankind, the fact that he sacrificed his only son for us, seems so unique and special that I would imagine the answer is no. I think that God created everything he created, and I know it's vast, and I know we're not at the end of it yet, But I think all of that is just to declare his glory to mankind. So you get that? I mean, like, why is life, human life so sacred? Because everything that was created 
was created to, to declare the glory of God to us so that we will, in response, worship Him. That we are loved in a very special way by our Creator and that He sent His only Son to die in our place. Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there was only one of us. I thought that was a great, great way of looking at this. That the, the eternal soul, the Imagio Dei, in each person is so valuable that God loves each of us as though there was only one of us. Jerry Bridges said, God's unfailing love for us is an objective fact affirmed over and over in the scriptures. It is true whether we believe it or not. Our doubts do not destroy God's love, nor does our faith create it. It originates in the very nature of God, who is love, and it flows to us through our union with his beloved Son. So we are loved by the Creator. Number four, we see in Scripture the sanctity of human life in the fact that human life is protected before even the law is given. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says, Whosoever sheds man's blood... By man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So there we see, again, the fact that our value comes in the, in the fact that we're created in God's image, very clearly there in Genesis 9, 6. But we see that before even God says, here is the law, do this and this and this, this is, this is my moral character kind of spelled out to you in the law. One of the first things he does is he gives them this command that they're not allowed to kill each other. Okay? And if you do, if you shed someone's blood, then your blood should be shed. That's God's, I mean, originally, before the law is given. And so I think that just speaks to the fact that God is a God of life, who preserves life, who's for life, who's there to protect life. Number five, we see that the sanctity of human life is protected by the law. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, Thou shalt not kill. And the word there is, Thou shalt not take innocent life. Okay? Do not kill innocent life. <clears throat> There's um, a lot of discussion about God and his command not to kill in light of the fact that you look at the Old Testament and much of the Old Testament is bloody. Okay, there's, some, there's some difficult passages, there's some parts where God commands the death of people. And so as Christians, we shouldn't just take those lightly, we shouldn't dismiss them. Um, but we should understand that as our starting place, God has very clearly commanded people that they should not be taking the life of other innocent people. And so at any time that God commands someone to die, the command is in light of the fact that they have been deemed not innocent, guilty. That's difficult for us. Sometimes we look, we say, oh, the person just didn't seem innocent, but this is the prerogative of the God who is for life to determine who is guilty and who is innocent. And so God here very clearly protects human life when he says, thou shall not kill. And so the question then that we have to ask is, okay, well, at what point is a person a person? And we'll get into that in a little while. But uh, I think that this command in Exodus 20.13 really covers a vast variety of, of topics that we'll talk about. Because I believe there he's saying human life is valuable, the character of God is such that he wants to protect life, and so therefore thou shalt not kill. Um, this is very, very clearly seen in the way that the Jewish people viewed issues like abortion and infanticide. 
Um, during that time, during the time of Jesus, and that's kind of where we're looking back to to get this, um, within the Roman society, abortion wasn't very common because it was dangerous for the woman, but infanticide was very common. And so what they would do is a baby would be born alive, and within the first few days, you were able to take that baby's life if it was not wanted. So, and so it wasn't even a, a human being. It wasn't protected by the law until it was a little, little older. I mean, the Jews had always been against this. The early church was very against this. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he wrote, The law, moreover, enjoins us to bring up all our offspring. And the law he's speaking about is the law of God. He's a Jewish historian. To bring up all our offspring and forbids women to cause abortion of what is begotten or to destroy it afterward. And if any woman appears to have done so, she will be a murderer of her child by destroying a living creature and diminishing humankind. So Josephus was very clear on that. And we could go through the early church fathers, and they, they all had writings that was a, against abortion. So this is not a new stance of the church. This has been the position of the church and the position of the Jewish people since the beginning. Okay? I say that because there are some people that, that attempt to justify abortion or, or different things um, and use the Bible to do it. And so it's important to us to understand that this is it's just not how it's been understood since it was given. We have so far that we are created by God, we are made in the image of God, we are loved by God, we are protected before the law was given, we are protected by the law, and finally, God is the one who sustains us. God is the sustainer of life. In Acts chapter 17, verse 28, says, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring." There Paul is speaking to a group of unbelievers. And he says, it's in God that we live, that we move, that we have our being. All of our life is found in him. Why? Because we are his offspring. We're his creation. So God is the giver of life. He's created mankind for a purpose. And throughout the Bible, God is adamantly pro-life. Even when we deal with issues of the death of wicked people, and even when we look to the Old Testament, we see the, the, these difficult passages, we've got to keep in mind verses like Ezekiel 33.11. It says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die? O house of Israel. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you realize that in sending his son, he sent his son to preserve our lives? I mean, so that, we, that though our body dies, our soul does not have to die. So when we're talking about God and his, his love for human life, realize that he sacrificed his son to preserve it, to sustain it. To, and so not only does he do that while, we're, while our human body is alive, but he's doing that for all eternity. He's giving us this way of life forever. And so human life is of the utmost importance to God and therefore should be of great importance to us as well. And so what I want to do now is I want to look specifically at this issue of abortion and talk about how that's viewed. We won't get too far into that this week because I think of all the issues, this is the one that certainly takes the most lives and it's the one that's probably most pressing 
And so we're going to take more time to look at that. And once we're done abortion, I think a lot of what we've just tried to, the foundation we've just tried to lay, we'll apply it here, and then it'll just clearly be applied easier as we go along to other issues, okay? So, um, of all the subjects, Francis Schaeffer said, of all the subjects relating to the erosion of the sanctity of human life, abortion is the keystone. Here's a definition. Abortion is the ending of the life of a baby or fetus in the womb. A natural abortion is called a miscarriage. An artificial abortion refers to the purposeful ending of the life. So uh, abortion in general is the ending of life. That would include miscarriages. The, the word technically, the definition technically, would include mis- miscarriages. Uh, and so that, that's a natural abortion, it's a miscarriage. Um, but the artificial abortion is what we're going to be referring to for the rest of the time. Anytime we use the word abortion, it means artificial abortion, which is the purposeful ending of the life. And so artificial abortions can be subcategorized as follows. So here, here are some of the reasons behind artificial abortions. Why do people go get an abortion? Here's six ideas of why. Number one, a therapeutic abortion occurs when the abortion is medically induced for the sake of the mother's health. So if the mother's health is at risk, then they perform a therapeutic abortion in order to save the mother. A psychiatric abortion is performed to preserve the mother's mental health. So she might not have a physical risk, but if the doctors can show that there's some type of um, psychiatric risk to the mother, that she will not be a stable mother, that that this will affect her, her mindset for the rest of her life, then they can do uh, psychiatric or abortion for psychiatric reasons. Okay, these are important because eventually we're going to see how in, in other countries they actually limit abortions a lot. Well, they actually limit abortions, period. We, we don't in Canada. A eugenic abortion is a used as a means of keeping mentally handicapped and physically disabled children from being born. And so a eugenic abortion would be they do a, a what are those called? Ultrasound? do an ultrasound, and they say, you know what, this baby's heart doesn't seem like it's beating the way it's supposed to, or this baby's arm isn't built right, or this baby's head is too big. And so they, they see that on the ultrasound, and they say, okay, we're going to perform an abortion on this baby because we know that it's going to have some type of disability. Um, and so that is called a eugenic abortion. So if you're wondering what eugenics is, you now have a hint, you have a clue. <clears throat> Number four, ethical abortions are used in cases of rape or incest. So if the woman was raped or if there's incest, then they do an ethical abortion, or that's what they call it. A social abortion is used to ease economic pressure on family or community. So if they can show that this uh, mother or these parents will have difficulty sustaining the baby um, with good food, nutrition, clothes, shelter, etc., then they can perform what they call a social abortion. And then finally, abortion on demand permits abortion without requiring any reason at all. Okay, so it's abortion as a contraceptive. Okay, I got pregnant, I don't want to be, I have absolutely no other reason to have an abortion other than I want one. And so that is abortion on demand. So those are the six different subcategories of artificial abortions. Um, Here are some laws and statistics. 29 countries in the world do not allow for abortion for any reason. 
So for any of those six reasons given, there are 29 countries that say zero abortion allowed at all. The mother's health is at risk, no abortion. If there was rape or incest, it doesn't matter. Okay? There's zero reason for an abortion. 37 more countries only allow abortion if it will save the life of, a, of the mother. So this is a therapeutic abortion. If the mother's life is at high risk, then 37 countries say, for that reason and that reason only can you have an abortion. 59 more will only allow abortion to preserve the health of the mother, so psychiatric or physical. So one is the life of the mother is at stake. The other is her health or her mental health is at stake. And so in total, we're dealing with a pretty good number of countries who actually limit abortion quite a bit. We're dealing with maybe 2 to 3% of the abortions performed in the world are performed for therapeutic reasons. And so you would limit 96, 97, 98% of the abortions if you were just to institute these laws in all countries. Um, but they're not. They don't exist in, in most countries. Only six countries allow abortion after 20 weeks gestation. So only six countries in the entire world say that if the baby is older than 20 weeks in the womb, then abortion is still legal. The countries are China, North Korea, the Netherlands, Singapore, the United States, and Canada. Only four countries allow abortions after 24 weeks gestation. That is China, North Korea, the United States, and Canada. I hope this is shocking you because we're, we're talking about like a whole lot of very liberal countries in Europe that are, and I mean, they're first world countries like ours. They're democracies like ours. And they put much stricter limits on abortion than, than we do. Only three countries have no limits on abortion. That is China, North Korea, and Canada. And only one democracy in the whole world has no limits on abortion, meaning you can get an abortion for any reason at any point of gestation. The moment before the baby's to be born, you're ha allowed to have an abortion because you decided that day you didn't feel like having a kid. The one democratic nation is Canada. Not only is it legal, it is fully government-funded up until the moment of birth. Now, in a poll that was done in 2009, 68% um, of Canadians disagreed with this. 68% of Canadians thought that, that this should not be the case. That's not saying that 68% of Canadians are against abortion, but they just don't think we should have an abortion on demand, government-funded, up until the moment of birth. About half of the women in an unplanned pregnancy have an abortion. That, that's, that's huge. Like, half of the women that get pregnant in any unplanned pregnancy, whether they're married or not or whatever, half of them have an abortion. These are Canadian statistics. <clears throat> the other half keeps the child, and less than 1% offer the baby up for adoption. So the number of babies that are up for adoption in Canada is in the hundreds. I think we'd expect that number to be like a massive, when we're, we'll get into this, but we're talking over 100,000 babies every year are aborted, and in the hundreds are being offered up for adoption. That's so tiny compared to the number of abortions. Um, <clears throat> Less than 1% of abortions are for the hard cases, the so-called hard cases of rape and incest, and only 3% um, of the abortions in Canada are for 
the risk of health to the mother, whether mental or physical. And so one in four pregnancies in Canada end in abortion. 50% of teen pregnancies end in abortion. And 33% of all reported abortions are repeat abortions, meaning that the, the mother has had an abortion already in the past. <clears throat> so out of 100 live births, there are 31 abortions in Canada. So that's just some of the statistics. Um, what is the effect of this? Um, well, globally, there are 42 million abortions every year. So, like, is that nine more million abortions than the population of Canada? Nine more, 42 million every year. <clears throat> there are 11 million women missing from the face of our planet due to sex-selective abortions, meaning there should be 11 more million. If the numbers were being based on pregnancies, um, there should be a lot more women than there are. And there are some countries that are actually having difficulty finding, some people have difficulty finding wives. Actually, there's a lot of countries where men have difficulty finding wives, but some even more so because of this issue. <clears throat> Sex-selective abortions are very common, especially in Asian countries. 300 children are aborted every day in Canada. Since 1970, approximately 3.2 million unborn babies have been aborted in our country. <clears throat> According to Stats Canada, there were 11,152 abortions in 1970. That number now is not recorded with accuracy, but it's the lowest statistics I've seen is 100,000. The highest is 120,000. I think in Quebec, they don't have to give them their, the full numbers and um, they don't report as well. Half of the abortions performed in Canada are performed in a hospital, half are performed in clinics, and so in clinics they don't report as well either. And so just a, a few stats to put this in perspective. In World War I, there were 67,000 Canadians killed fighting World War I. So a lot, but a lot less than are killed every year. In World War II, it was 47,000. So you combine those numbers and you get the death toll of babies every year in Canada. And so the state of our nation with this subject is pretty deplorable. It is about as bad as it could be. It is about as bad as it is anywhere in the entire world. I, I think as Christians, we should be thinking seriously about how we're viewing this topic. Okay? If God is really a God who loves life, who created life, who wants to protect life, and we're living in the worst country in the world for abortions, we should probably think more about what we're doing about that. All right? We should probably be ready to def defend what we believe in a biblical way. All right? And so for the next few weeks, I hope it's not all going to be this depressing, um, honestly, but it is good for us to see what's actually happening and... Next few weeks, we'll talk about how we do that and how we can, in a loving and kind way, hopefully with our minds, with our hearts, and with our actions, be a good solution or part of the solution to this problem. All right? So thank you for coming. Uh, church, if you haven't already been, starts at 11.